It's such an honor to present this next award. And here are the nominees. And the Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to... And I can't deny the fact that you like me right now. You like me. I'm the king of the world. There's a mistake. Moonlight, you guys won Best Picture. Welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. I'm senior writer Joanna Robinson, and I am joined today by chief critic Richard Lawson. Hello. And digital director Mike Hogan. Hey, Joanna. This is a big episode, I, I would say, because it's our last one before we know who the Oscar nominees are. This is our last chance to sort of shoot our shot with some last minute predictions, um, because, you know, we, we, are, we are expert predictors, right? Oh, yeah, 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 faultless. So good at this. <laughs> Never wrong. Uh, it's always fun to see, you know, how wrong we might be. So we're going to get to that towards the end of the episode. But first, we're going to hit some news that has been going on in this crazy award season cycle. I, I have never, well, I just want to first ask you guys, have you ever experienced an award season that feels this chaotic, Richard? No, I mean, I think that both in terms of the films having their controversies, but also just like the very infrastructure of the awards, you know, with um, with obviously the Oscar host thing and now this SAG Oscar battle, like it just feels like it wasn't enough that the films had their sort of in, in internal problems now, like the whole the whole machine surrounding it is like also sparking and on the fritz. Yeah, I'll talk more about this when we talk about this specific incident, but the kind of impermeable, monolithic institutional power that they had before is just gone, and now it's like open season. And so, and and th it's happened because of some, you know, major kind of screw-ups. It feels like it all sort of started with La La Land get you know opening the wrong envelope and right. has just kind of like torn open this uh, I don't know what like the, torn open the fabric of the universe of the Academy and suddenly we're all looking inside going like what the hell's wrong with this situation so and the the museum's not helping like the Academy just seems to be kind of a hot mess and it's just like the chaos is uh, emanating in every direction Trump has eroded even those norms I mean. yes. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it's so funny. I was thinking exactly that when I, you know, we're going to talk about this SAG Oscar feud that that sort of popped up earlier this week in a second. But I had that exact same feeling when I was writing up that piece, um, the news piece about that for Vanity Fair. It was just sort of like, what has happened to the Oscars? And I was talking to our co-host, Katie Rich, who is not supposed to be talking about award season because she's on maternity leave, but couldn't help herself and was talking to me about this. And she was like, I don't understand what's going on. And I said sort of something similar, Mike, where I was like, I feel like the Academy has been sort of slightly weakened on a few sides. And a lot of people who have had longstanding resentments towards the Academy are like, this is our year. This is our shot. To recap what happened with this SAG Oscars thing is that the SAG AFTRA, the you know Actors Guild, uh, went, went ahead and published a like public rebuke of the Academy uh, for... I guess something that's been a long-standing issue, which is the Academy trying to bogart all the presenting talent for their show. And so, you know, and this is something that the Hollywood Reporter had already written something up about the Golden Globes having a similar issue with the Academy. And so, you know, basically this very public letter 
from the from the SAG Guild says that the Kemi is exerting extraordinary and unwarranted pressure on talent to hold them from appearing at other award presentations. Um, and then further, we have received multiple reports of these activities and have experienced firsthand the Academy's graceless pressure tactics and attempts to control the award show talent pipeline. Award season is a very special time when actors and actresses are being appropriately celebrated and recognized for the outstanding quality of their work. We would expect the Academy to honor these goals. And it goes on a little further from that. Um, the the According to the report uh, from The Hollywood Reporter around the Golden Globes, you know, Margot Robbie is is an actress who declined to present at the Golden Globes so that she could present at the Oscars, for example. Whereas some people are exempt from these talent tug of wars, like the cast of Black Panther, because their film is nominated. And so, you know, the Academy will kindly let them and not punish them for presenting at the Golden Globes. I don't know. It's this fascinating wrinkle that I had no idea was a thing um, until this year. So uh, starting with Mike, I guess, what do, what do you think of all this? So my understanding is that this has been going on for a long time. And, and that's why I'm saying I think it's only in a situation where you've got a weakened academy and people's fuses are, you know, at the end. Um, that they actually come out and say, "All right, enough already! Like, cut it out. We're gonna we're gonna call you out." Um, but obviously, the Oscars are in a. We, we've talked about this many times over the years. You know, the the thunder has pretty much been stolen from the Oscars in many ways after you know 250 awards shows uh, in the lead up, and um, now that people actually sit around and watch the SAG Awards and actually sit around and watch the Critics Choice Awards, not millions and millions and millions of people, but like a bunch of people. You know, you can see that they would probably crank up the pressure trying to say, well, we got to do something to keep this thing special. Um, but very interesting that the SAGs feel no compunction to just be like, back the hell off um, and stop stop doing this. So it's another sort of just like ugly exposure of, I guess, the dark side of this well, world. It's also funny because may- maybe the Academy understands these realities better than I do. But from my perspective, is anyone... Who would otherwise watch the Oscars going to be like, oh, you know what? I already saw Nat Benning present at the SAGs. I don't need to watch the yeah, Oscars. Like anyone who's watching one is watching the other. I, I don't know. Or, or, or at least someone who watches the SAGs is definitely watching the Oscars. Yeah. You know, so like it probably doesn't matter who is present. You know, I, so it's just this kind of funny thinking of like, well, if we nominate a superhero movie, then then 70 million people will watch again. Right. 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 Like, no, I think that's gone. <laughs> I think that's yeah. over. Um, and you just now need to focus on like. I guess making the best show for the niche audience that stuck around, and I don't know. I don't know that that niche audience really cares if they're doubling up on presenters. Well, I feel like it's interesting because there's this a lot of places and institutions, and frankly, you know, you can see it in the media uh, are at that point where various people hit that breaking point and realize like okay we have to actually give up on everything that we used to do and and until you reach that point then you're kind of playing scared and you're thinking all right well we we can't let you know all the presenters have been somewhere else we have to lock up some people and whether or not it actually makes any sense in 2019 people keep doing it because that's what they've always done and that's how they've kept score in the past so i i'm sure there is some of that just sort of institutional um, inertia going on, but also, yeah, they don't want to give up on the idea that this is a a big communal thing that tens of millions of people tune into at the same time that all of America cares about. You know, until they 
it's interesting. I mean, I'm I'm not sure I would want to give up on it either. But I know you've consistently kind of advocated, like, it's time to wake up and smell the coffee on that. I mean, maybe that's me being a pessimist. I don't know. But, like, there was some statistic that came out this week that, like, 20% of Americans can name the last, like, two Best Picture winners or something like So it was a pretty small – I mean, I guess it's a big number in some by some measures and small by others. And Yeah, I read that piece. I don't know exactly who they polled. But I, I was especially depressed by the, the outcome from that poll where it was, like, more people thought La La Land won than Moonlight. I was like, what, if one Oscar fact didn't sink into your brain, shouldn't it be that – Moonlight did win. Moonlight, you won. They only pit- pulled That's- Faye Dunaway. That was the problem with that. <laughs> <laughs> One thing I've been thinking about uh, in terms of like what has been chipping away at this, uh, as you put it, Mike, this monolithic uh, power source is the era of social media. Because I think the problem started before La La Land and Moonlight with like Oscars so white and stuff like that. Yes, these, like, true. These campaigns that challenge you know an institution challenges power and like that you know the pressures the external pressures of like hey you know you have been this body that has anointed what is the best in our world and i think we are entering an era you know and and i think film critics see this too where it's like the the larger populace is like no we don't we don't want to let someone else decide what we think is best. You know, we, we have a voice here. Why are you the one to say that this is what's best? Um, and I don't always agree that, that it should be that kind of war or something like that. I don't always agree with that. But at the same time, I think that is kind of the attitude of why we see people just like chipping away and chipping away at the Oscars sort of shrouded, um, you know, sanctified power. If you're taking political issue with the arbiters of taste, you know, politics. If you're saying their politics are wrong, they're not doing this, they're underrepresenting, you know, X, Y, and Z people. Do you really start to either, do do you really continue to fight to change the politics of this very rigid kind of, um, well, long unyielding group? They've since, you know, recently made, the Academy has tried to be, you know, more receptive to criticism and, and, and make actual changes. But for years, they were sort of just like, la, 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 like, we're not paying attention is it easier to to try to make them change or just kind of decide that they don't really matter, you know? And I think that that's kind of what a lot of people did. They were like, that that they have this kind of say over culture is kind of, is arbitrary anyway. And so if they refuse to change with the times in some ways and stop just patting themselves on the back for every 20 years giving, you know, someone who isn't white an Oscar for acting, then, well, we don't really care about them anymore, you know, rather than trying to, like, just yell at them to change and they, when they refuse to do it. So I think that's what started weakening it was, was, was taking a step back and actually assessing their role in culture, you know, and, and what kind of how outsized, you know, their power is. And I think people have been calling that into question. Hopefully the Academy can change enough that it gets it that earns that respect back. But, you know, I think it has a little way, a little ways to go still. I personally, there are ways in which we talk about the Golden Globes and the Hollywood Foreign Press Association and the way we talk about the Academy. And I still like I do want to make it clear on this award season podcast that I still have like I really respect the fact that Moonlight won. Like, that still matters to me. That still feels like a right and just thing that happened in this world. And so it's sort of like we we talk about all the gamesmanship that happens uh, with the Oscar race and how, you know, it's not just like a virtuous award, uh, you know, given to the very best thing that happened that year. There's a lot of political positioning in play here. But when it is right, when it does feel right, when it does align with what you think is best. I don't know. There's still, to me, no no feeling pure in in the realm of, of film. So I mean, to your point, 
this is the one where something along the line of 8,000, you know, theoretically very experienced um, creative professionals vote, right? Not not 80 sort of like weird European uh, junket junket people. So it is it is more meaningful in that way, I think, just objectively. But it's also not like ultimately meaningful, you know, more so than other things, too. And, and I think that what's happening to what you're saying, Richard, is there's there seems to me to be two things going on. One is technological change in communications changed our entire world, including how all this stuff works. And the other is a giant generational baton passing from a very un- willing baton passing baton being wrestled out of the cold dead hands of the baby boomers by the millennials skipping over my generation which is fine please just keep me around uh for laughs (laughs) we love you gen x and so the way the boomers you know would handle this kind of controversy is sort of like placate people till it dies down and it's just not ever going to die down like the world we live in now is a disputatious world of woke people attacking, you know, and being counterattacked by uh, intellectual dark web people. And, you know, it's just going to go on like that always. And and there's going to be 40, you know, ways to slice and dice what the best movie of the year is or, or four million rather than one. And I think that's just our era. So maybe it comes back to your original point, Richard, which is like they got to figure out in the 2020 and forward world, where do they fit in, you know, and how do they kind of emphasize like, hey, we're the we're like the award that's meaningful because it comes from your community. Yeah. Um, and, and maybe focus on, you know, I mean, it, it's how the Tonys do it. But the, the Tonys also benefit from the fact that a kind of casual, even like sideways observer of the tone hasn't seen nine out of 10 things nominated for a Tony. But people have seen movies. So they're like, wait, I saw a movie this year. I have an opinion about a movie, you know, and so that it, it's just it's just a lot. It's a lot easier for people to sort of be dimly aware of what's happening with the Oscars and thus kind of have an opinion about it. Um, and I don't know that the Academy is ever going to, and they don't want to run away from that because they, they you know, it, it is a big deal. And I, I still, you know, I still get excited. Like you said, Joanna, when something like Moonlight wants and you feel like, Oh, that's like a righteous victory um, or whatever it may be. So I don't think that they can ever get as small and insular as something like the Tonys, which is just very much fan service, but they could, you know, they could reshape a little bit. And I think that, you know, and not to, I don't want to get relitigate that, but like, you know, the hiring of Kevin Hart, you know, a, th- a thing that I wrote for VF, it was like, it's not that I cared that much about these kind of bad jokes that he made. It's more that like, they just weren't considering their core audience, you right. know? And yeah. and I think that a little bit more of that, rather than trying to appeal to people uh, f- who don't actually really care. I mean, it's the kind of thing where like, you 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 love the one you can't have, not the one you have, you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so I just yeah. wish that they would kind of be a little bit more honest about that. And then maybe the more fun the show got and more sort of, the, the more the, 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 the base got excited about it, maybe other people would kind of like turn in their heads too. I don't know. Who yeah. are the Oscar deplorables? Mm-hmm. Let's focus on them. <laughs> it's the three of us and Katie <laughs> and whoever yeah. else, you know? It's true. Okay, so um, I, I want to talk about the next thing that makes this whole award season feel like slightly unstable, which is the Critics' Choice Awards, which which happened this past weekend. Full disclosure, I am a voting member of this body, so is Katie Rich, so whatever Richard or Mike say uh, next is up to them. But uh, just to let you know that there was a strange thing that happened at the Critics' Choice Awards, which is that Lady Gaga and Glenn Close tied for the best actor. Why did you do that, Joanna? Uh, what were you uh, thinking? I did it personally. I I wrote. Well, no, I did one. I did Glenn Close, and Katie did Gaga, and then we just sort of like because we run the whole thing. <laughs> so you know. All right. So this tie happened. 
A few other things happened. Patricia Arquette and Amy Adams also tied in a TV actress category, which just made me happy because I wanted Amy Adams to get a Sharp Objects win. Uh, What do you guys think of this? Does it mean anything at all? And should we talk about some of the other wins? Well, if the Academy is pulling sinister tricks like banning uh, presenters from the SAGs and stuff like that, I wouldn't put it past them to have paid off some critics so they could make a tie happen so the narrative is still exciting. Like, oh, it's still Gaga versus Close. Tiebreaker. Exactly. Like, like, like you got to watch the Oscars to find out who wins in the end. And it's like, you know, because just a week ago, we were like, ah, oh, Glenn Close has it in the bag. And now it's like, maybe not. Uh, yeah, so I don't know. Maybe, true, <laughs> true. Maybe this is strategy. But I don't know. Should ties be allowed? Is that is that sporting? Like, no. No, right? If, I mean, I like the ties. They're both great ties. Yeah. But it's also annoying. Yeah. Like, well, pick a winner. I was listening to uh, uh, Who Weekly, which uh, a podcast we're, we're friendly with, uh, and they were saying that they that, that the strategy for breaking a tie is just to call up a random critic and be like, all right, we have, we have a tie. Just decide. <laughs> I guess if anyone should be doing ties, maybe, maybe it's critics. There's something a little weird about critics, I guess, picking winners in general, although they do. They all we do. do. Yeah. You guys yeah. do. Uh, I, I don't know. Yeah, I like this um, list overall. I like seeing Roma win Best Picture, which I guess you would expect from critics because I do believe that 20 years from now we'll look back and be like, that was a hell of a filmmaking achievement. Whether or not lots, lots of people watch it all the time, it'll be like Criterion Collection. Sure, you know? yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, Christian Bale for Vice, that feels like it, there's a lot of momentum there, this crazy tie. Mahershala Ali, I mean, is there? we're going to come to our Oscar predictions later, but like... Is there any world where Mahershala doesn't win Best Supporting Actor at this point at the Oscars? It, it feels, doesn't feel like it. It feels like he's rolling. Yeah. Yeah. I plus, mean, you know. yeah. To talk about voting periods, we voted for this after, like, in the midst of the all the Green Book controversy stuff that happened, which we will talk about briefly. But, like, the timeline is we were voting about this after all of that broke. So if Mahershala still won, which he did, um, you know, what, what can hurt him, right? Yeah. So um, it seems like a pretty good list, and it does seem like this list feels like, um, maybe because I hang out with you guys, this list feels like the kind of world that I live in, who, what would win the Oscars, you know, in many cases. Um, so I like it. Yeah. yeah, I mean, Christian Bale looking good, um, Regina King winning. Yes. Is happy. We, we were worried because she didn't get nominated for SAG or BAFTA, so we were worried about her, but she won, you know, so that's, uh, you know, uh, upward momentum. Yeah. And the favorite the in there for, favorite in there for like an ensemble award makes sense, right? That's always been the sort of like the challenge for any individual actress in the favorite mm-hmm. is they're all amazingly yeah. great and it's not even clear who's lead. So, you did, know, did Christian Bale win that. twice? Yes. Okay, that's funny. Well, that's, Best that's, actor that's, in a comedy. That, the yeah. hilarious Vice. <laughs> that, so the, this was the first time that I ever voted in the Critics' Choice Award, and I was asking, you know, Katie for her guidance because she had voted before, and I was like, "Can I vote for this in the comedy category and in the best?" Like, I think I did. Sorry to bother you in both. Like, not for the final voting for for nominating in both, like Best Picture and Comedy. And she's like, "Sure, why not?" I was like, "This feels." so much freedom i can't believe it so that's how i think you get christian bale winning two categories because just like define it how you will critics so um, i think further down the line you know when you get into some of the technical categories you know black panther winning for costume design we're all hoping that you know um for for ruth carter's costume design we're you know i think that would be a great win for that movie yep you know i obviously vice for best hair and makeup that makes sense a lot of Uh prosthetics going on in that but i think it's interesting to see you know again these are critics these are not the academy so it's a different kind of mindset maybe but it is interesting to see first man in 
win Best Editing, which, you know, is a pretty big award and is a movie that has kind of been, by some, counted out of the season. Yeah. So I'm curious to see if that movie could actually, like, get a little bit of stuff down, you know, down the line in the technical categories. So it would yeah. at least have some presence at the Oscars this year because that was a pretty critically, you know, beloved movie that, for whatever reason, kind of fell by the wayside. And it won score, too, which is kind of surprising. Oh, yeah. People love that score, this is too. because of Katie. Katie did this. I want to I I honor Katie Rich and say I finally watched First Man because I'm writing something on the VFX for our magazine. And that's what finally got me to watch it because I was so resistant. And I was watching it at home, you know, admittedly, like not with 100% of myself, uh, you know, watching it. And then that there's the moon landing sequence, which has a lot of score and a lot of VFX and... I, I stopped. I literally like, kind of dropped what I was doing because it was stunning. It's a stunning sequence. And so like, I don't know, maybe if I had seen it in the theaters, I would have felt it with my whole heart. I didn't feel that movie with my whole heart, but like, I am in awe of a lot of the technical things around that film. And so I apologize for making fun of Katie for so long for her love of it. I kind of get it a little bit more now. So um, I would love a score win for that, for that movie. Is there anything else we want to say about the Critics' Choice Awards? No, I just don't understand why I'm not in that, that voting body, but okay. Yeah, really? <laughs> We're going to, well, we've been blackballing you, Richard, but uh, you know, you can send your, your fruit basket to me and I'll see what I can do. Um, <laughs> So we're going to hop over to this Green Book controversy um, that we alluded to since we – it feels like it happened a million years ago. But since we last recorded, uh, believe it or not, both uh, Peter, director Peter Farrelly and screenwriter Nick Vallelonga have had these, I don't know, scandalous – Things break from their past with Peter Farrelly is the fact that um, I believe it was the cut dug up some old interviews where he talked about how much fun he used to have exposing his penis as a prank. And with Nick Vallelonga, some old uh, tweets, at least one old tweet surface, which with ha- which has some like anti-Muslim uh, tones, not undertones, overtones to it. Uh, so both uh, Peter Farrelly and Nick Vallelonga have apologized for this. As we said, it seems to have not really touched Marshall Ali and sort of kind of why should it, since these are not the sins of him, um, but maybe sunk Green Book's larger chances. Uh, what do you guys think, Richard? Well, I don't know. I mean, the, this is the conversation we keep having, I feel like, about how much anyone's paying attention and how much this stuff registers and in some ways how much it actually moves the needle in the other direction because there's this kind of like – you know, pushback against this kind of like, well, that was an old tweet or that was an old joke or whatever. Um, so it, if for like a brief second, I was like, oh, that movie Goose is Cooked, like it's done. And I was like, I don't know. I don't know that like anyone's yeah. really like holding on to that stuff uh, yeah. in the same way that we might just to kind of keep a narrative going. And, and let, let, let's be honest about that. I mean, like we have to have t- stuff to talk about. Journalists, you have to write about stuff, you know. Like I think that maybe, you know, we we, 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 we can sometimes grab onto little things that don't actually register for, you know, uh, you know the, the people we're writing about in a way. I feel like the Green Book narrative that actually matters to me, um, leaving aside those very, as Kareem Abdul-Jabbar put it, boorish, that boorish behavior by uh, Peter Farrelly and Nick Vallelonga, The narrative that I think matters is people are watching it. Voters, a lot of them are, um, a lot of the new ones are young and diverse. A lot of the old ones are not so young and not as diverse. And I think they're thinking, is this a movie that does what Hollywood movies are supposed to do, which is like lift your spirit and teach you a lesson and make you feel good? And I think probably they're saying yes. And so, you know, let's not get too hysterical about whether it, you know, 
violated this thing or that thing, you know, at the end of the day, like it, it, it's, it's, um, it's a movie that does what we want movies to be able to keep doing so that they remain a really broadly popular art form. I think that that's, that my guess is that's what's sustaining Green Book through all this stuff. And I still think it will win, um, not win, I think it will be nominated for Best Picture. I do think that at some point, though, the pileup of this stuff makes it less likely to win Best Picture. I, I, but I could be wrong. I, it just feels like there's like just kind of a little bit of a stink on the movie now with all this kind of crazy shit going on with it. I could see it getting nominated for Best Picture, and I could see Mahershala Ali winning, and everyone feeling kind of like a little sour about – not everyone. Some people feeling a little sour about that, but feeling okay about it. I'm curious if we think it's still going to get into the screenplay category with Nick Vallelonga, because I think that there are, are – you're right – you know, my, my new drinking game for Little Gold Men is every time you say the word woke. And, like, uh, you're right that there is this, like, <laughs> woke fatigue around everything. But I think there is still, at least in Hollywood, there are sins and there are sins. And the sin of, like, associating with Trump yes, is higher than others. True. And the fact that the fact that Nick Vallelonga's tweet was, like, to Donald Trump about a 9-11 conspiracy, it like is a is a particular stink on it. You yeah. Know? So I, that's I a know. good that's a good point. But then again, do some academy members here like Twitter? I don't I don't care about that. You know, like certainly I think some people are like, come on, don't be yeah. digging up people's old tweets. And you know, it felt there were certainly people claiming that it was like a um dirty tricks, you know, Harvey style job. like a right. hit job. Yeah. And I can't was was it very close to nine eleven because also having lived through nine eleven here I do there's also a little bit of like a pass on like everybody was so fucked up with PTSD for a little while that like um, maybe we can that can add to the like if the guy apologizes and seems sincere hopefully he learned a lesson two thousand fifteen oh that doesn't work then no it was when Trump said the thing about seeing. Muslim people cheering on 9-11 in Jersey City. And Nick Vallelonga said, I was there. I saw it. You're right. I thought he did that contemporaneously. Okay. No. Yeah. So, you know, this... That's not good. You know, so I I think that 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 probably uh, doesn't help it much. I think also in terms of screenplay and best picture and all that, because Mahershala Ali seems like he's going to win and that's much more of an unimpeachable win. I mean, you know, that's like everyone can get behind that when he's he's good in the movie, despite whether the larger yeah. movie is whatever. Like maybe that means that people will just say, well, OK, I like that movie. We'll vote for him and then figure it done, you know, yeah. in the same way that a lot of times one win kind of represents the broader movie. So which is exactly what Mike predicted after the Golden Globes or both of you, I think, when I was like, I don't think Marshall's going to win the Oscar. You're like, you fool. This is the award they're going <laughs> to give Green Book. So uh, so here we are. I'm, I'm now agreeing with you. I just want to say one more thing about Green Book, which is, look, setting aside the admittedly serious and fraught like um, identity issues around this story. Like families are notoriously difficult. And I think, you know, filmmakers and producers, especially who are making movies based on um, true stories, spend a lot of time trying to keep families and other real life people like at the right simmer where they're not actually involved, but they feel, you know, like Mm -hmm. they're participating and that their voices are being heard. They really, really screwed this up with this family, setting aside anything else. It was just like, just kind of like, didn't do a good job, didn't do their due diligence. And and I do wonder, frankly, if, you know, that is a, a, a reflection of some kind of, you know, 
even latent sort of structural racism that they didn't that they didn't bother to do it, you know. Yeah. And I think I think that that's that that's biting them in the ass, and and it's an issue, you know. Well, I think also, and, and not to like assume the the best sort of intentions or whatever, but like I know as a writer who's sometimes you know writing to make an argument that I can get three quarters of the way through something, and I'm like, wait, but there's also this thing. And you kind of like the tendency or the or the temptation anyway is just ignore that thing. And I wonder yeah. if they're like, this is such a great story and we don't want to trouble the narrative by talking to the other half of it because like what if it, it what if it complicates it or something? I don't know. Yeah. But, like, well, I think I think one of the issues with the movie that's interesting. I, it, first of all, the movie to me is basically the the Vallelonga family's foundational myth of how they stop being so racist like a bunch of racist <laughs> Italian Americans I grew up Irish American with the, in this world so like I get it you know yeah. and that's important it's good for families to be, be less racist and a lot of families were super racist and they were also uneducated and there's lots of stuff involved in class and all the rest of it so that's good. But also Tony Lip is clearly a complete fabulous. I mean, he's constantly bragging in the movie about what a great bullshit artist he is. Right. So probably all these stories are fake. I mean, you know, yeah. and that's where it does get too good to check, right? Like the YMCA story. They don't want to go to a bunch of family members and be like, so there's going to be a scene where he's naked with another man on the floor and Tony saves the day. They're going to be like, go to hell. No. Yeah. Yeah. You know, exactly. potentially. He, yeah. There was some argument about whether or not, like, the actions of Peter Farrelly, the actions of Nick Vallelonga should quite reflect on the film. And I'm like, you know, can you separate the the creator from the art? Or, but there's such a connection between exactly what you said, Mike. This foundational myth that like the Vallelonga family was cured of racism by this instance, in, like by this time in their lives. And then Nick Vallelonga tweeting this anti-Muslim propaganda. And it's like, or maybe not. Or maybe just towards black people and they don't like Muslims or whatever it is. It's like, it's of a piece. You know, it feels like it's not just like Peter Farrelly exposing his penis is, is its own as we'll use Kareem Abdul-Jabbar's boorish um, thing. But this Nick Vallelonga tweet just feels related to the foundational problems of the film that some people have been calling out. But as you both rightly said, a lot of people still really like Green Book and they still want to give it something. So I could see, especially, you know, in an expanded best picture race, Green Book being in there, but not having a strong chance of winning and Mahershala taking the Oscar. So, I mean, this is kind of a tangent, maybe, but like that, that movie Glass comes out on Friday, the M. Night Shyamalan's kind of closing the third part of this weird trilogy he's doing. And something that people had with the film that came before it, Split, with James McAvoy, where he plays someone with dissociative identity disorder, uh, multiple personalities, uh, was that its approach to mental illness was bad. And so when I reviewed Glass, the, the third movie uh, recently, and I gave it sort of a negative review. It ended up on Twitter moments. And so I had a lot of people responding to, to my tweet when I tweeted out the review. I don't think a lot of them hadn't read the review. But something that I saw come up absolutely more than once, when someone would call out the movie for its treatment of mental disorders or mental illness, someone else would say, that's not the job. The job of the critic is not to care about you know the stuff surrounding it. It's about if the movie is good. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. I think that that kind of thinking, right or not, translates to the way that a lot of voters think about it it's like i don't really i mean i'm just i'm assessing the two hours i spent in the dark watching this movie and and the broader context of it it, almost everything would be ruined by context you know and and i don't i don't necessarily agree with that position but i think that's a really strongly held conviction about how to watch something yeah and i that's why i think that like 
even a, a an anti-Muslim tweet to Donald Trump, which, like, let's be honest, a lot of people are making those tweets all across America at any given time, yeah. like, is is impervious. Uh, the movie is still impervious to that kind of stuff. Yes. I think that people want to bat away. They want to go to the movies and escape. They want to bat away all this stuff. They don't want to, like, most people don't want to have the movie then be an occasion to, like, think through 20 thorny issues about our world they're just like you know tell me a good story it is a good heartwarming story that is ostensibly progressive and anti-racist so you know i think people want to like live in that reality and not necessarily a lot of people don't necessarily want to then like examine every, all the parts of it that don't add up which there are a number of them when you look at it oh yeah all right, so um, that is the Green Book controversy, and that leads us into our May it never three. be spoken of. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it informs what we're going to do next, yeah. which is just we're going to do a quick round robin. We don't have time to go into every category. I certainly don't even want to make any close to any predictions about shorts yet because we haven't watched them. But like, we're going to talk about the top categories, and we've got two criteria to talk about them. The number one, we're going to go around and say – um, something that I'm calling like the monocle popper, right? The thing our monocle would fall out of our face if this person did not get nominated in this category. We would be so shocked and surprised. So we're going to all pick one person that we were like, this person's definitely getting nominated. And then we're going to round robin and we're going to say maybe one favorite. I'm going to put it this way. One favorite, one person we were championing that the reality is setting in and we're going to let them go and say there's no way they're going to get nominated in this category. So okay. So we're going to do, the, I would call them the top four categories just best actor best actress best director best picture we are going to start with best actor and i will go first to give you guys some time to sort of uh get your ducks in a row so the person that i would be oh this is so easy the person i would be like shocked to see them not nominated in this category uh would be one mr bradley cooper uh mike who's your person christian bale christian bale richard um, I mean, those are two, the two I feel like locks, but increasingly, uh, I would be surprised not to see Rami Malek in there. Okay, great. So those those are the three. We've you know there are two more slots that'll probably go to like. Uh, well, I don't know. You know, not Viggo Mortensen anymore. Maybe who knows? Okay. Um, anyway, the the favorite, I guess, that I will let go of in this category. Um, I'm gonna go with. Uh, this is harder than I thought. Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna let go of. Joaquin Phoenix, you were never really there, which you were never really here, which is a film that I really enjoyed that a lot of people were sort of quietly pushing, but it never really broke through uh, in the momentum. You were never really here was never really there. (laughs) Yeah, Joaquin (laughs) Phoenix was never really here for for getting nominated here. Mike, what favorite are you letting go of? Um, This is harder than I thought it It was going to be. I know. Uh, Well, because my favorite's in there, Bradley Cooper. Like, like, you know, I think he's definitely going to get nominated. Yeah, um, I think Ethan Hawke for First Reformed is not going to get in there. Even that, I was people. thinking Ethan Hawke, although he he probably is not, right? I just Can think that movie is Ethan too Hawk? small and esoteric. He's great in it. He yeah. got his critics' prizes. He did. Like, that's probably... Yes, that yeah. sounds right. Sorry, I'm cheating. And, Though he and... could take Viggo Mortensen's spot if the people deem that movie untouchable. I don't know. Well, if people just don't want to nominate a Valalonga performance, right. you know, sort of thing. All right. Oh, John Cena from Blockers. John Cena oh, from Blockers. Of course. <laughs> of course. You're saying he will get nominated. He will. Yeah. Yeah. Monocle will pop <laughs> yeah. if he does Monocle not will pop. get nominated. <laughs> All right, um, Monica Poppers. This is, I mean, once again, this is pretty easy. Uh, I don't know why I came up with this criteria. Uh, I will say Olivia Coleman. Yeah, I mean, I would be very. I mean, I feel like she's the number, a solid number three to to, to close in Gaga, right? Like, yeah, 
I mean, I don't know. I suppose I'm looking at Gold Derby. And maybe at this point, I would be surprised if Emily Blunt didn't get nominated. Because, like, I Interesting. think, she's, I think she's, she's, she's hovering at five right now. I'm going to be risky, obviously, Gaga. Well, actually, I'm going to say Gaga for my monocle popper because I do think there is, like, a 2% chance. That she won't. That she won't. I, I mean, think the monocle yeah. could, there's a, there is one earth in all of the many right. earths um, where, where monocle pops. Are you, are you implying then that there is one earth among the many earths where Jennifer Anson did get nominated for cake? <laughs> yes. And, and, and is, is she spending millions of dollars trying to find that, that And world? she and yeah. Justin are still together. Right. Oh, um, all right. Uh, I will say, and the favorite that I'm letting go of is Toni Collette and Hereditary. I don't think she's getting in, and I love her very much, and it's a great performance. And maybe next year, Tony. What do you think, Richard? Yeah, I mean, I, I have, uh, I, I don't know. I'm, I think Yelitsa Aparicio for Roma, like, could still get in, but I'm sort of resigned to the notion that she won't. Which you know, I love that movie. Uh, it was my favorite movie of the year uh, of 2018, but. Um, you know, I I think that maybe its strengths are elsewhere. I don't know, but some people in Gold Derby still have her in the five uh, over uh, Emily Blunt. So we'll see. Yeah, I agree with that. I um I would also say Nicole Kidman just because I want to mention Destroyer is so awesome. It's what a crazy movie. <laughs> she's like, that's a hell of a performance. But I didn't doesn't look like she's gonna. And she keeps talking about her. how it was like the hardest thing for her to shake. You know, and I remember a year ago she was filming Destroyer and she accepted an award for. Big Little Lies, maybe. And she was like, sorry, I'm just filming this really dark role. And then she keeps talking in interviews. She's like, I really got in that role. And you watch the movie and you're like, oh, she's just like in some crazy headspace. Can I tell you my favorite part of Destroyer is the um, the chase. Where she's chasing this like sleazy guy who is like probably a drug oh, right. addict. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's the, and they're like running up a hill in Los Angeles. It's the only chase scene in a movie where like it's realistic, where they're winded after like... 17 seconds they're of running so <laughs> they're so <just> like, exhausted <gasps> and I'm like and, that's yeah, what it would look like if these two people actually had a chase it also, on the street that, that's very true and the movie also this is now a podcast about Destroyer the movie also <laughs> um, considers the fact that like if you got kicked and punched a lot you'd be really hurt right? <laughs> like yes. which most movies kind of ignore I was so worried about her like joints for most of the movies I was <laughs> yeah. like her, yeah. her knees look like they really are aching right now anyway everyone watch Destroyer I guess watch now we're gonna get her a nomination <laughs> yeah. with this conversation I do want to say really quickly Nicole Kidman is having a hell of a year at the box office speaking of controversies not touching people like The Upside which is the Kevin Hart uh, Brian Cranston film like did, did huge numbers at the box office despite all of the Kevin and heart controversy and conversation that we, that's been going on. Nicole Kidman's in that movie, and the upside ups like upset Aquaman, which Nicole Kidman's also in. So, like, great job at the box office, Nicole Kidman. You're doing it. You're really doing it. Um, all right, let's do director. Um, I will, you know, I guess I'll plant my flag on. I'm gonna say Yorgos Lanthimos. I'm gonna put it there. You'd be shocked if he doesn't get nominated. I'll be shocked if Yorgos doesn't get nominated. What do you think? I would say Spike Lee. Um, I think this is his year. I think that John David Washington's probably gonna get an actor nomination. I think it'll get a Best Picture nomination. So I would be. I, I think that would be a glaring omission if they were to not recognize him as well. Mike, this is obvious, but my monocle would pop right out of my skull if Alfonso Cuarón <laughs> didn't win. I'll right. say that. Yeah. Didn't win. I yeah. I am a very strong Cuarón wins the director Oscar believer. 
Yeah. To get to the other side of this, something that uh, we've been talking about a little bit around the office is the fact that like Barry Jenkins and Damien Chazelle, who were like these monoliths of of the Oscar season a couple years ago, like had these big award friendly movies and it hasn't been quite necessarily their year in the same way. Um, So I am going to let go of Barry Jenkins getting nominated for If Beale Street Could Talk. Uh, Who are you going to let go of, Richard? I don't know, a lady, Deborah Granick, Mario Heller, both of who have been on this podcast, go back and listen to their great interviews. Um, no, not not great because I did them, but because they're great. But uh, yeah, I think I, I think that I think that maybe there was a chance that Mario Heller would get in because people seem to really be into Can You Ever Forgive Me? But um, I'm giving up that 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 ghost. There you go, Brian Coogler for me. Oh uh, yeah, I don't mm-hmm. think it's happening for him. What a bummer. All right. And then let's talk about Best Picture. This is obviously like a longer category, but I i mean, what? Uh, what my choice is Black Panther, I guess. I'll be, I really think Black Panther is going to get in this long list. I'll be very surprised if it doesn't. Uh, Mike, what do you think? Bohemian Rhapsody. Um, <laughs> maybe. I, mean. I think I do think that. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, yeah, I would. I would be. I, I'll say Green Book. I I do strongly believe Green Book will be nominated for mm-hmm. Best Picture. And I think the surprise, the mo- the monocle popping of that would be, wow, maybe people are paying attention to this controversy stuff more than I thought they were. Yeah, you yeah, know, yeah If it yeah. doesn't get in, mm-hmm. um, so yeah, we'll see. The favorite that I'm letting go of, but I'm still hoping to see it in like a screenplay category or something like that, is Eighth Grade, which didn't quite, you know, get to Lady Bird, Moonlight you know, tiny movie uh, gets in their status. So um, pour one out for eighth grade. I, I got to let it go in best picture, I think. Yeah. Blockers. No, um, but close. <laughs> a, quiet, a quiet place. I think I'll, I'll, I will let it go. It's not going to get nominated, mm-hmm. but I hope it'll get nominated somewhere. I think yeah. it's really good. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe I'm being pessimistic and like, I don't know, I'm maybe a little contrarian or whatever, but like, I'm kind of getting this feeling that like, maybe Mamma Mia, here we go, isn't going to get a Best Picture nomination. <laughs> <laughs> Richard, do we still have time to get on a boat, pull a Colin Firth, get on the prow of a boat, and ride around the like the bay of Hollywood. Does Hollywood have a bay? The the shore sure. of Hollywood and 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 stump for this movie. I I'm afraid to tell you, Joanna, that the nominations window has closed. So we are oh, we have no. missed our shot, sadly. We are out of time. All right. So this might all be fruitless. But anyway, those are our weird, strange, uh, heartfelt predictions. We will express our shock or joy or dismay when the nominations come out next week. But that is it for us this week. All right, well, well, Mike has vanished in a puff of smoke, but you can find him on Twitter at Mike underscore Hogan. You can also still tweet at Katie Rich at KT Rich with a Y. Uh, Richard, where can people find your work? I'm at Rylaws on Twitter. Uh, you can find all of us on VanityFair.com. I'm at Joe Wrote This. This podcast was edited and produced by Danielle Roth, and the award for the best campaign spot for John Cena and Blockers goes to Mike Hogan. Please just keep me around uh, for laughs. <laughs>